Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Is there really a train in Sweden that will take your soul if you step inside? And then we travel to Florida to take a look at a private school that attracted students from all over the world. It was once known for taking bad kids and setting them straight. But in the end, it is remembered as a school that was taken over by demons. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day, too. First off, let's give a shout-out to our newest Patreon supporter, Zeech. Zeech, thank you so much for supporting the show. Really, really helps out a lot. You're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you can't support the Patreon, that's fine, too. Just help get the word out about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. Zeech, let's go ahead and start off in the Jason Jet, one of our newest vehicles. We're going to leave behind Oregon. We are flying all the way out to Sweden. Breaking free of these dismal clouds. We're up in the bright blue sky. We're flying high. We're headed out to Sweden. This was actually a recommendation from a Patreon supporter, Stefan Walnerstrom. Very, very interesting story. So thank you so much for uh, pointing the story out to me. And I got most of my information from an article written by a journalist named Eric Grundhauser. So I wanted to give him a tip of the hat as well. Shorter. We are specifically going to Stockholm, Sweden. And the year is 1965. So we got on all our old clothes not 1965 clothes, we're just wearing rags now. We're walking around Sweden looking like a bunch of Oliver Twist characters. The year's 1965. So as we're walking around begging people for porridge, we have to get into the city center. And to do that, we're going to take the Stockholm metro system. So this is our mass transit system. So we're standing in line with a bunch of other people, and we're waiting for the train to pull up. Now, in Stockholm... All their trains were painted green, very, very well kept, nice and clean, people polishing the windows, very well kept up trains. But as we're standing here waiting, we see a train in the distance, choo-choo, I don't think it wasn't, it wasn't Thomas the Tank Engine, it's like a subway car, right? It's a bunch of subway cars, but anyways, we see it, it has a big face on the end of it, we see it coming down the track, but it's not green. We kind of look at each other, we're like, what, that's kind of weird. It's not the only thing that's weird. It's not just that. they. This is a different color train. The end. This train is coming, and it's green. So that is weird, but that's not the only weird thing. And then it comes up to the station. The doors open up. We all kind of hesitantly walk towards the door. Even people who are longtime Metro users are like, what in tarnation is this? Doors open up. We look in, and these trains are not well kept up. It looks inside, it looks like someone did their best attempt at cleaning it, but you could tell where there used to be graffiti had been quickly painted over, a little bit of chewed gum had been quickly scraped off. Look at each other, we're like, I thought these trains were supposed to be clean, and I thought they were supposed to be green, so both of those things are weird. Now, a weird thing happens. Nobody wants to get on this train. This isn't what the trains are supposed to look like. Everyone's a little creeped out by this thing. One passenger goes, I gotta get to work. I'm a heart surgeon, and the guy's dying right now. I'm gonna get on the train right now. 
I'm not scared of no ghosts. He gets on the train, but everyone else stays on the platform, and the doors close. Train goes around the bend. People don't know what to make of it. This is a real thing that happened. It began to be called the Silver Arrow. And people started seeing this silver, kind of dirty train pull into stations. And it was really random. Nobody knew when it was going to show up. But it wasn't the normal Stockholm Metro train. And and people started to build a rumor around this thing. It was haunted. It was a ghost train. It stole the souls of those who stepped on it. That poor, poor heart surgeon. (laughs) The poor, poor guy who needed the heart surgeon more so. But if you stepped on the silver arrow, you'll never get off. Since it didn't have a regular schedule, it wasn't something that people could predict. It's not something someone could go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to miss the green train, and you're trying to get to the station real quick, and you're like, oh, man, that's the soul-sucking train as it comes around. You're like, I'm going to be late for work again. You just didn't know when it was going to show up. You'd be waiting for a train, and sometimes you would get a train to your work, and sometimes you'd get a train to eternal damnation. And all of these myths started spreading. Eventually, somebody found out where the train car headed. Kimling Station. Now, Kimling Station was a station, was a deserted train station that Stockholm Metro had started building at one point because there was supposed to be this business expansion in the area. And then they just never finished it. It's a full train station that's pretty much abandoned, covered in graffiti. That must be where the Silver Arrow is dropping people off at. The rumor began to spread now that that station as well was cursed. So these rumors grew over the years. The train will steal your soul. If you're lucky, it'll drop you off in the bad side of town. It's just it's just on the outskirts, right? Then you got to walk back to your job or something like that. But also that train station was cursed. What's interesting about this story is it's 100% true. The facts behind it is 100% true. There really is a Silver Arrow train, and that train station really does exist. The train station, I kind of gave away the ending, so the train station was built, and they just never had the corporate expansion in the area, so Stockholm Metro just said, we're not going to send any trains there. That train station is out of order. It's a fully built, fully functional train station, but since no one's gone there, it's been taken over by the Hobo Empire. The Silver Arrow is actually a real train. It's not a phantom. It's not something that people made up. What happened was in 1965, Stockholm Metro goes, you know, what? we have these really nice green trains. They're quite expensive. Maybe, maybe we could save some money by buying this old unpainted train. It's an old silver unpainted train. We got eight cars. We got it as a discount. You buy four cars, you get the next four free. So we're just going to put it on our lines. And then, you know, people in Sweden, they're not a bunch of superstitious rubes, right? When it pulls up, everyone will hop on it. People want, they might complain that obviously it looks a little more junky, but it saved us so much money. Everything's cool. What happened was nobody wanted to write it. It was actually ended up costing them more money because now they have a fully operational train on different routes that nobody will use. We all know, we've been talking about urban legends and stuff like this for a long time. First off, a lot of times we cover urban legends that have no factual basis, like the Melonheads, which was a great story, but they're like in Ohio and states next to Ohio. I'm not a big geography guy, but these guys with giant melon heads running around, and sometimes they were cannibals, and sometimes they were mutants, or they were always mutants. (laughs) People just weren't born with melon heads, and bye, honey, I'm off to work, gonna go eat people. They were always... Mutants living in the wilderness, but sometimes they 
were mutants created by doctors. Sometimes they were inbred hillbillies. There was no factual basis for that story outside of an older brother trying to scare his younger brother. That was it. Making these stories up for generations. This story was real. There really is that station that's still abandoned to this day. There really was that train. They took it apart. It no longer exists. But the way these legends work is that now it is a ghost train. So now the younger generations totally believe that this is a real thing. That if you stand at a train station for too long or you've done something wrong, or your soul is ripe and ready to be devoured, the silver arrow pulls up. Even though it physically doesn't exist at all anymore, the legend still does. And that actually helps the legend. Obviously, if you told your little brother that if you get on that train, you you never get off, and then you see a silver train get on, and you really, really have to go to the bathroom, and the only bathroom is three miles away, and you're like, oh, this doesn't devour my soul, because it's going to devour a full bladder as well. The train takes you and then drops you off at a McDonald's, and you hop out and go to the bathroom. Then you know the curse isn't real. You know that it's fake. You've actually tested it. But because the train doesn't exist, you can never test it. You will always be told the story about Sally Steverson, who got on the train in the sixth grade and was never seen again. Because you can't test it anymore. It's very, very interesting when we can find the origin of a curse or a ghost story or some sort of item, and it be true, it wasn't completely made up, and now that it's destroyed, the legend will just grow and grow because it can never be disputed. So if you ever are in Sweden and see a silver train nowadays, don't get on it. Don't get on it. In 1965, you would have been totally fine, but nowadays, that one may end up stealing your soul. Probably not. It's probably just Sweden trying to save some more money. But that is the story of the Silver Arrow. Great name for that. Interesting story. Thank you, Stefan. So we are now walking around Sweden. It's pretty dope. Walking around Sweden, we're eating bags of Swedish fish. We're like, oh, I was wondering where this disgusting candy came from. Now we just have to find out where candy corn comes from and nuke that country. And while we're walking around Sweden, I point at a movie theater. And then I'm nudging you. I'm nudging you. I'm like, hey, dude, look, look, look at that movie theater. You're like, yeah, dude, it's a, it's a movie theater. I'm like, no, look what it says on the marquee. And then I turn to you. <laughs> I go, don't look at the movie theater. Now look at this. And I hold up an, uh, a DVD. I hold up a set of DVDs. Here we go. The Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection is available now on 4K Ultra HD in a combo pack with a Blu-ray and digital code included from Universal Pictures Home Entertainment. This collection includes, for the very first time, the original, never-released, uncut version of Psycho. Universally recognized as the master of suspense, the legendary Alfred Hitchcock directed some of cinema's most thrilling and unforgettable classics. This collection includes four iconic films from the acclaimed director's illustrious career, including Rear Window, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds in stunning 4K resolution. Starring Hollywood favorites such as James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Anthony Perkins, Janet Leigh, Tippi Hedren, Kim Novak, and Rod Taylor, this essential collection features hours of bonus features as well as the original uncut version of Psycho for the first time ever. This collection with collectible disc book packaging includes hours of bonus features such as documentaries, expert commentaries, interviews, screen tests, and much, much more. You might say, if you don't purchase this collector's pack, you can tell I'm off script. (laughs) You could say, 
You could say, if you don't buy this collector pack, you just might be psycho. I I, I added that in. Don't, don't blame Universal for that. Just wait until the next one. Uh, I'll, I'll make a punch for the other. I don't know what I'm going to do about Rear Window. But I'll figure out something. I'll make up puns. Hopefully I'll remember to for the rest of the week. Zeech, let us leave behind Sweden. We are headed out to sunny, sunny Florida. Let's hop in that carpenter copter. Let's bring it down. We don't need no Swedish train. Plus, they don't go over the ocean. We're leaving behind Sweden in our carpenter copter. We're headed out to Florida. I actually found this article just recently. I got it on medium.com. It was written by Jeff Mache, and that's where I got all my information. So again, I always like to credit the journalists who do on-the-ground reporting. Bring that carpenter copter nice and low. We're now flying over sunny, sunny Florida. It's October 25th, 1979. We're headed to Little Havana, Florida. And in Little Havana, there is a school, a private academy known as the Miami Aerospace Academy. It's the middle of the school day, and we're going to land that carpenter copter a considerable distance from the school, because I know it's going to happen. We walk up to the school. I guess we could have landed closer, because now we're walking to the school. We walk up to the school, and we're looking through the chain link fence. It's just a normal school. We see a man named Joseph Wolf. His designation was disciplinary instructor. So that should kind of let you know how this school was operated. It was his job. His only job was keeping students in line. So he's out in the schoolyard, leading around a bunch of kids, doing drills, doing like physical fitness drills. Then all of a sudden, even though they're outside in the field, they start to hear a commotion inside the school. It sounds like panic. It sounds like hundreds of kids screaming, yelling, and running. They had really heavy shoes on. You could hear that from outside. And then all of a sudden, Joseph looks up, and on the second story of the school, he sees a kid jump through the window and fall directly on a school bus. <laughs> Joseph looks at that, and he thinks, that kid, is, that kid is crippled for life. Like, that fall, the impact on top of that bus, he's done for. And then that kid stands up and just begins to casually walk off the bus. Let's go back in time. We're back in Florida right now, and there is a man named Evaristo Marina. He was the general director of public order in pre-revolution Cuba. He worked his way up to that position. He was a power-hungry man. And in pre-revolution Cuba, the world was his oyster. In college, Marina had an archenemy, someone that he debated politics with, All the time. The friends would be like, oh great, those two weirdos are at it again. Let's go to the bar. And these guys would argue for hours and hours. Marina's arch enemy in college was Fidel Castro. Not a good, not good, not good to pick fights with future dictators, right? So when Fidel Castro does actually overthrow the government of Cuba, Marina is one of the first dudes on his hit list. So Marina flees the country, he goes to Florida. Now in 1959, he ends up in Miami. He tries to go into politics, and he tries to build up a reputation, so he enters the Army's Junior Reserves Officer Training Corps. So he has this nice uniform. He feels like he's on his way back into a seat of political power. But until he gets there, he comes up with an admittedly brilliant idea. So in Florida, apparently, 
anyone could start a private school. Like, you show up, a couple bucks, you could set up a private school. And he's sitting there and he goes, you know, I should set up a military academy. Because I got this nice uniform, I'm actually in the military, so I have those connections. I mean, it's not like he was a high-ranking general, but I can do this. I can set up this military school. He sets up the Miami Aerospace Academy. He has the students wear military uniforms. He drills into the kids. Hard work equals hard results. And if you goof off, you, you're, getting, you're getting beat up. They had a paddle called Big Ben. It was a cricket bat with holes drilled in it that cuts down on wind resistance. And he would have his disciplinary instructor walk around with this paddle and just beat just be kids up with it. It was horrible. But the parents loved it because they were taking these kids who were bad kids and they were coming home and they're like, yes, sir, no, sir. They weren't saying no at all. They're like, yes, sir. The parents were like, whoa, dude, this is really working out. Like our kid was having trouble with school before. Now he's accelerating in all of his classes. He has a hard time sitting down. But other than that, everything seems to be going A-OK. The Miami Aerospace Academy begins to get an influx of students. He begins advertising in South America, saying, send your kids up to my academy. I'm going to turn them around. If they're already on the straight and narrow, I'm going to put them on an even more straight and narrow. My students excel at everything. Plus, there was this promise of an aerospace academy. See, maybe it would lead to greater things. So he had all these students coming in from South America. He had all these local students coming in. The parents loved this dude. But the students weren't a huge fan of him. Now, some of them really looked up to him. He called himself El General. A lot of these students really looked up to him as a powerful man. They didn't have fathers. And he was that father figure. But he also ruled by force and paranoia. Very, very dangerous combination. You knew that the disciplinary instructor was walking around with Big Ben, so that would kind of keep you in line. There was also rumor going around that there were hidden microphones everywhere. Every word you said, he would hear. So you didn't ever speak bad about him or the facility at all, which would create an air of total obedience. If you thought something was up at the school, if you thought, well, maybe we shouldn't be getting beat for these minor infractions. If nobody else was saying that, you would just assume you were the oddball, right? And you're like, oh no, I hope that isn't, I hope, hope being an oddball is not on the infraction list. He ended up buying an F-84 jet. People say they don't know how he got this. And as funny side note, as he's having the jet brought to the academy, they actually had it drive down. Now, it wasn't like a guy taxiing it down the road, but they had it like on a truck, on a flatbed. And as it was going through Miami, it was scraping cars because it's a plane. It's a giant fighter jet, right? So its roads aren't built to have combat aircraft go down it. So it was all scraping up cars and stuff like that. It has nothing to do with the story. I just thought that was super funny. But anyways, he has this jet. He puts it right out in the front entrance. Kids are always like, oh, maybe someday I'll fly a jet like that. But we start to see this go from a very strict atmosphere to... People people rebel in the only ways that they can. And the only way to really rebel against this environment was to tell stories about it. Kids would be standing out and they'd be looking at that F-84. You know, the guy who was in this plane originally, he burned to death. When this plane landed, it was on fire. And the pilot couldn't get out. He burned in the cockpit. 
This plane's haunted. You know, some of the teachers practice Santeria. Oh, I, I paused there so you guys could get that song out of your head. You know, some of the teachers here, they practice Santeria. I found this burnt penny. And that's a sign of a Santeria protection spell. Burned pennies. Now, it was a little more than just burned pennies and rumors of this haunted jet. People were finding dead chickens. I mean, I guess I could have started with this part, right? People were legitly finding dead chickens with red ribbons wrapped around their neck, which is a Santeria spell. Now, in this community in Little Havana, and it may be, it may be everywhere Santeria is practiced, but the Santerians, I don't know if that's what they're called, but the people who practice Santeria would wear all white. Kids would go, maybe the teachers wear white when they're at home. See, at school, they have to wear this uniform. But we can't tell who's actually practicing Santeria. We know somebody does, though, because we're finding all these dead chickens and burnt pennies. So in this atmosphere of total rule, total power, kids begin to rebel by spreading these rumors. It's not helping that they're serving chicken every day in the cafeteria. Red ribbon chicken, Monday through Friday. But... They also then begin to practice magic themselves. So kids would show up in hushed tones so the microphones don't pick them up. They'd bust out a Ouija board when they were all alone. Try to communicate with the departed. Girls would be in the bathroom playing that classic game Bloody Mary. They never really knew what would be scarier if Bloody Mary came out of the mirror or if a disciplinary instructor found out what they were up to. But see, the danger made it even more enticing. There was rumors that teacher was doing tarot readings in the class. In early 1979, Joseph Wolf comes on board. Now, he said, I'm not down with hitting the kids. When he came in, he goes, I don't want to use Big Ben. I think we can just focus on the kids, yell at them, yell at them a bunch, and we can get them in line. I'm not down with, with hitting these kids. The previous disciplinary instructor just disappeared one day. She never showed up at work. Big Ben sat there in Marina's office. Hadn't been used since. The kids were curious about what had happened to such a powerful figure at the school, but who would they ask? Just asking the question would result in disciplinary action. So, But Joseph Wolf comes in. He goes, I'm not down with that whole you know, uh, corporal punishment thing. There's another way to deal with this stuff. October 25th, 1979, it's 12.15 p.m. And there's this teacher, she's leading her students out of one class, down the hallway to another one of their classes. And as they're walking down the hallway, (laughs) they hear a girl crying in the girl's bathroom. Teacher's like, what? Oh, man. So, what's going on in there? (laughs) What's going on in there? Eventually, the teacher has to force her way into the bathroom. And there's this young girl sobbing in front of the mirror. She grabs the girl, she brings her out, and she's like, listen, we'll just walk with my whole group of students. I'm going to drop off my students, and I'll take you to the office. The girl's hysterical at this point. Now, as she's dragging this crying girl down the hallway with her class, they hear what could only be described as a ruckus. The sound of a bunch of boys getting wild. Like a pack of animals. They don't know exactly where it's coming from, but they hear the noise. Now, her class is starting to get a little antsy. There's a crying, sobbing girl next to them. Now they're just hearing rampaging kids somewhere in the school. They start to panic, and she's like, just go through this hallway door. We'll get you to your other class. I'll figure out what's going on. As they go through this main hallway door, 
the cafeteria is emptying out. Lunchtime is over. And you have two groups of kids kind of push into each other. Now they all hear the noises. The girl's crying is getting louder. Nobody knows what's going on. Panic sets in. You are trapped in a mass of bodies. And you just hear sobbing and chaos all around you. Students at random fall to their knees and begin to sob uncontrollably as other kids split off in every direction trying to figure out a way to get out of there. They're not curious about what's going on. They need to leave this building. Joseph Wolf is outside the building with his kids that he's doing drill exercises with. And he hears that crash of the window and sees the boy fall. No, really, jump out of the second story window and land on top of the bus and then get up like it was nothing and gets off the bus. Joseph runs over there. He knows this kid needs medical attention. And he goes to grab the boy to hold him in place, figuring the kid's in shock. He grabs the kid. The kid shrugs him off. And that really shocks Joseph because he knows how strong he is in comparison with a teenager. So he goes to grab this kid again. The kid shrugs him off again. He's, he, he can't understand it. And he ends up getting behind the boy and getting the kid in a bear hug. He's like, if the bus impact didn't kill you, I will. He gets the kid in the bear hug. And holding on to him is almost impossible. This kid is superhumanly strong. Joseph Wolf said that as he's holding on to this boy, trying to contain him, the boy's head rotates around. So it's looking at him in the eyes. Joseph Wolf lets go of the kid, and the kid just runs across the field, hops a fence, and disappears into the neighborhood. That part, that part honestly sounds unbelievable. Physically, at least, unbelievable. And I think I would be more willing to discount it if another student had seen it. And if this wasn't a, this guy, Joseph Wolf, what did work at the school, and he hadn't told this story for 30 years. He did end up telling the story for the article, but he did work there. It sounds unbelievable, but what he's implying is that this kid was possessed by some sort of demon. But he actually has bigger problems right now because, well, I mean, you just saw a kid's head rotate around and then run off after falling on top of a bus because now he's hearing more windows shatter behind him and kids are running out of the school in every single direction it is utter chaos kids are screaming the demons in there the demons in him the demons in me it got out of the ouija board no it didn't it's bloody mary she's here to kill us all utter chaos this is an interesting detail to the story as well as this is all going on you have a bunch of kids that that are might be in the midst of some sort of mass panic episode But as kids are talking about demons and Bloody Mary and stuff like that, and they're totally flipping out, you know what the teachers are doing? They're quitting on the spot. They're just like, I'm done. And they're walking, they're getting in their cars, they're leaving. They're leaving the kids there. If you thought it was just a bunch of kids going crazy, I think you would do your best to try to wrangle them in. However, if you thought that there was a bunch of demons running around, you'd quit. You'd be like, nope, I'm done. I don't need to come back here. It's a bunch of demons. You don't get workman's comp when you're possessed. Teachers are quitting on the spot, and they never return to the place. Now, Joseph Wolf is still trying to figure out what's going on. He runs into the building, and he sees all the chaos that's been caused. At this point, most of the kids are outside of the building, almost all of them. He gets to a room, and he sees a teenage boy and a teenage girl sitting in the room, and between them is a Ouija board. 
It's like, what, guys, what are you doing? Oh, we were just looking at it. We were just looking at it. We don't, we weren't playing with it. We we're just looking at it. He's like, I don't know if you, if you guys have ears or eyes, but the whole school's evacuated and everyone thinks there's a bunch of demons running around. I don't think you should be next to the Ouija board. So he takes them out of the classroom. Now, they ask him to take her home. They're, they're boyfriend and girlfriend, this teenage girl and teenage boy. And he does. He says, yeah, I'll take you guys home. At this point, parents are picking up their kids and they're saying, my kid's never coming back here. Marina thinks this is all some sort of stunt because he's currently in the midst of a political election. So he was always trying to get that political power. He believes that this was all fake, that his political enemies put the students up to this or something like that. Joseph's like, I I don't really care about that stuff right now. I'm going to take these kids home because the parents not picking them up. So he takes the kids back to the girl's house. And the girl says, can you wait till my parents get home? Because, you know, it's kind of spooky. He's like, yeah, yeah, just a little spooky, right? I just saw a kid survive a near-fatal fall and then wrestle me off. He said he was there till about 8 p.m. He's sitting there with these two teenagers. And the power goes out. Coincidence? Yeah, possibly, right? They're sitting in this... Probably not, though, considering the events earlier in the day. Joseph said he's sitting in this house with these two teenagers. The power's completely out. And in the darkness, he hears the boy and the girl begin to cry. He's he's probably a little close himself, honestly. But he goes, "What's, what's going on? Like, why are you guys upset? Why are you guys crying? And that's when the boy admits, we weren't just looking at the Ouija board. We were playing with it. And Joseph realizes that something's really, really awkward. But his spidey sense wasn't working this day. He should have never taken the kids home, but he realizes something's wrong. He said in the darkened house, which he'd never been into before, he's trying to find the front door. And when he does find it, it won't open. He said he almost had to kick the door down to get out of the house. He runs, he gets in his car, he turns the key, and he said it felt like my car didn't even have a transmission nothing worked on it and I'm sitting outside this house and then finally the car starts up he goes I left that house and I never ever saw those kids again I quit the next day the school for the most part was finished at that point it ended up they lost that facility a bunch of parents told their kids out of the school I mean of course right Even if it was a mass panic, you'd be a little worried about that. People started questioning, hey, what actually happened? Like, I might be willing to put my kid back in school. If you can explain what happened. My son says you have secret microphones everywhere. You should be able to hear, like, your political enemies whispering in a kid's ears. Like that guy from Willy Wonka trying to get the gobstopper. You should be able to hear what happened leading up to these events. And that's when it turns out there were no microphones. It was a lie to keep kids on edge. He was able to keep some form of the school going. He had to move it to an abandoned, like, strip mall. And it was there that a six-year-old boy one night broke out of the school, and the cops got called. And they caught this six-year-old boy trying to climb the fence. And as the cops were taking him back to his dorm, the boy said, Don't. There's monsters in there. Unfortunately, though, these are the monsters we all know exist whether you're skeptic or not, in his need to rebuild the school and to get more students, he began taking in kids with serious criminal records, including one of them who had murdered his own father at the age of, I think, 15. And so you had a group of sexual predators in this school. 
and they were molesting the weaker, younger students. That was the end of Miami Aerospace Academy. The demons, you could go, it was mass panic, it was something people were, one person freaked out and then everyone freaked out. This was a ongoing crime, one of the worst crimes possible. That was the end of the school and Marina's political career. That's the story of Miami Aerospace Academy. It has a dark ending with that, with the real monsters out there. But let's go back to the demon story real quick here. Because I find that there, I think there's a fascinating note in it. Let's put on our conspiracy caps here for a second. Let's wrap it up like this. Those two kids sitting at the Ouija board, Joseph says that he recognized them. He didn't remember their names and he took them home. Lights went out. He bounced, left the two kids there. They didn't attempt to follow him out either. They stayed in the darkened house as he's kicking down the door, gets in his car, drives away. They stay in the house. Conspiracy cap on. Those two kids weren't students of that school. He'd see the students around the school, in the cafeteria, in the back of a classroom, walking down the hallway. But they weren't students. They were summoned by the students' pain, though. They could have been tulpas. They could have been demons. They could have been brought into existence through the use of dark magic rituals. When you're powerless, you will use anything it takes to have a tiny shred of power. And there are few things more powerful than hate and fear combined. These kids came into our world for one reason. To free the rest of the student body. And they held up their end of the bargain. But what does a spirit of vengeance do when that vengeance has been wrought? Do they just disappear? Or does it seek for more hatred and more fear to feed on? They didn't have parents to pick them up because they didn't have parents. That house was just a house of some random family that wasn't there when Joseph Wolf pulled up with these two kids. And they sat in that house after Joseph left. They sat in the dark, wondering what was going to come next. When the family that did live in that house came home, everything was perfectly normal. He thought it was a little weird that the door seemed, seemed to be a little wobbly from repeated kicking, but nothing that couldn't be fixed. They walk into a house, it's exactly how they left it. And that night, the parents go to bed. Their young children go to bed. And their teenage daughter is sitting in her bedroom, working on her homework. And that's when she hears a noise in the hallway outside of her bedroom. She sits up. She hears it again. She walks down that hallway and sees the bathroom light is on. She tests the knob and it's unlocked. She walks into her bathroom and no one's in there. But then... She sees the image of a young girl in her mirror. A girl she's never seen before. She should be startled, but she feels comforted. She feels like this image in the mirror is her friend. Because despite all outward appearances, this house is not a peaceful house. Bad things happen here sometimes. And she feels like the girl in the mirror knows all the secrets of her family. And as she stares in that mirror, she starts to wish 
her life could be different, and that she could be free from this misery. She doesn't say it out loud, but the reflection can almost read her mind. Because right when she thinks it, the reflection smiles. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>